You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing Muslims who use female pronouns for God. What are Islam's teachings about God's gender? Why have Muslims primarily referred to God as he? And what do some Muslims believe referring to God as she will achieve? And what do discussions about pronouns and God reveal about broader issues of gender within Islam today, including the influence of modest fashion industries around the globe? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Hafsa Lodi. She is the author of the book, Modesty, A Fashion Paradox. She is also the author of the Revealer article, The Muslim Women Using Feminine Pronouns for Allah, from the May 2023 issue of The Revealer. You can read her article at therevealer.org. Hi, Hafsa. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Of course. Great. So first, congrats on your great article for The Revealer that's gotten lots of attention, including a segment on NPR's All Things Considered. Um, I'd love to start out so that all of our listeners are on the same page and ask you to begin our conversation today by explaining Islam's teachings about God's gender. What do the sources and the scholarly consensus within Islam say about God having a gender? Of course. So the primary sources of Islam, so the Quran and the Hadith or the um, sayings and teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon Mm -hmm. him, and the scholarly consensus and interpretations of these scriptures are all in agreement that God has no gender. God is not mm. male. God is not female. God has no family members. God is beyond gender. Mm. So then, great. Thank you. That's very helpful. So then if the teachings are clear that God does not have a gender, traditionally Muslims have referred to God as he and have used masculine pronouns. So can you explain a bit how that developed as the common way of referring to Allah with pronouns? Yeah, okay. So the simple answer is that in the Quran, um, Allah refers to themselves as he. Um, In Hmm. Arabic, the word he is huwa. It translates to he in English. Um, so throughout the Quran, if you read an English translation, it will it, God will refer to themselves as he. Arabic is a gendered language, so there are these, these pronouns for male and female. But a more complex answer is that it's mainly been men who have been the knowledge makers, the interpreters, the scholars, the religious mm-hmm. leaders throughout um, Muslim history. And in many cases, patriarchal ideals have become fossilized with the interpretation of scripture. So that there's this, there's been this really strict adherence to uh, referring to God as He, which oftentimes then manifests in this vision. When you vision God, when you vision the Creator, uh, you think yeah. you, of this masculine, pa- divine, patriarch type form. So then, great. So then I'd love to hear about why various Muslim activists, scholars, and writers who you talk to for your Revealer article have started to refer to Allah as she and with feminine pronouns. What are the various things they say doing that can achieve? 
I first came across Allah being referred to with the, with the feminine pronoun, and I think work by Amina Wadud, uh, the African-American convert and theologian uh, who's the author of Quran and Woman. It mm. was quite jarring for me. And I think a mm. few other times there's Aisha Chaudhry in her book, The Color of God. She, she refers to Allah as she sometimes. And yeah, at first it was quite jarring, but the more I researched it, the more I realized like, actually, this is not so controversial. Um, so mm. they would say that if Allah is beyond gender and is, is neither male nor female, then both of these pronouns are wrong. And so mm. neither is right, neither is wrong. So one can't be more wrong than the other. <laughs> um, so we kind of show preference for he traditionally, um, but there's no yeah. harm in using she. So traditionally, uh, Allah has 99 characteristics or attributes in Islamic theology. Mm. And these are kind of further classified into Jalali is powerful and masculine. Jamali is beautiful and feminine. So these are kind of scholars' breakdowns and interpretations of these uh, these characteristics. These activists who are using female pronouns for Allah argue that Allah has both feminine and masculine characteristics. Therefore, either pronoun works. Hmm. So I think that argument is quite simple, actually, if you think of it, if you think of the root of it. And it really resonated with me um, and some other mm -hmm. women I spoke to for this story. Interestingly, it is mostly women who are on board with this. Uh, not many Muslim hmm. men are uh, kind of part of this movement. Um, but that being said, a lot of Muslim women are not, uh, are not on board with this, cannot fathom how you can call God female would even call it disrespectful or blasphemous, which is interesting because it shows that kind of um, loyalty, that really rigid loyalty to the masculine pronoun and, you know, begs the question, why are we so loyal to that pronoun? And what is it about the female pronoun that kind of tarnishes God? It shouldn't. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that and maybe the thoughts of some of the people you spoke with. You did mention in the article that that referring to Allah as she gets some people into a tizzy. And you as you've explained to us that, you know, if if the teachings are clear that God has no gender, referring to Allah as she wouldn't necessarily be something that should provoke outrage, but there does seem for some people to be, it's, it's provoking something. How do you explain that in, in the present day? What it's, what's the, you know, the, the outrage that it provokes among some? Yeah, I mean, there's outrage in general um, in wider society right now about pronoun usage, um, mm -hmm. and particularly mm -hmm. within the, the Muslim community, um, at least in the East. Um, even in the West, there's you know, there's a lot of wider political um, discussions going around around pronouns. And so I think bringing Allah and Allah's pronoun into the conversation is just uh, another tangent of this kind of um, uproar. Or as, as Amina Wadud said, it's, a t it's people get into such a tizzy about it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that if you think about Allah and how we're supposed to think of God as Muslims, they're this very, you know, powerful being, a very fluid being that should not be constrained by the binaries of gender. There's a word uh, called Tawheed, which is like the oneness of God, which is mm. beyond gender and is both genders. And, you know, it's just um, there's there's so much of this more abstract theology, that, but people get really bogged down in the binaries. Um, and I think Sophia, Dr. Sophia Rahman had said something along the lines of language is, is unable to encompass the totality that is Allah. So Anything we kind of do um, in terms of English language to even Arabic language to explain to describe or explain Allah, we always fall short. So we're just doing the mm. best we can. 
For some people, calling Allah she might help them forge a deeper connection with the Creator. You know, when they're praying, it might just help them make that connection and that spiritual thread. It just might be stronger if they use the female pronoun as opposed to the male pronoun, often because of their own negative experiences with uh, extreme patriarchy or with perhaps harmful or negative male religious leaders in their lives. Yeah. I mean, these are just some some reasons why uh, why a woman might feel more comfortable calling to God as she and why it might be a kind of spiritual um, awakening for her, really. I also noticed that there were a few different people who you interviewed in your article who said that they shift the pronouns they use. Sometimes she, other times he, occasionally they. What do you think that sort of approach accomplishes or, or helps people by, by not, you know, just only using she or only using he, for example? I think this, this um, tendency to switch between pronouns can be uh, really interesting, but also <laughs> further confusing. But I think it's interesting um, from a teaching perspective. I, I know when teachers use this kind of approach, it helps the students kind of question their loyalties to certain gendered pronouns mm -hmm. for God. Mm -hmm. And if they're mm -hmm. comfortable with the masculine, then why are they uncomfortable with the feminine? And kind of examining that and discussing that as a class, I think that can be really helpful. But I also understand that like in one sentence to refer to Allah as both he, she, and they can be very confusing. Yes. Like Amina Wadud said, we made such a big tizzy out of this, but it's really so simple and so personal. And whatever pronoun you feel comfortable referring to your creator with, is up to you and it shouldn't be anybody else's business and it's, nobody else should really care. You know, for me personally, I have a four-year-old daughter and this kind of, the kind of um, inspiration for the story came from when we were in the car one day and uh, we were at a traffic light and um, it, it was, she needed to go to the bathroom really bad. And she was like, Oh, when's the, when are we going to get home? When are we going to get home? And I was saying, you know, <laughs> just, just pray to God that the, the traffic light turns green. And she goes, she like whispers something under her breath and goes, okay, I prayed to Allah, I prayed that she turns the light green. And like right away, I sort of barked, mm -hmm. he, you know, like I start, I, I corrected her because she had said she, I corrected her to he. And then uh -huh, uh -huh. I really regretted it. I really regretted correcting her like that because why was I sort of then conforming to this, um, you know, longstanding history of insisting that Allah be referred to as he? When for my four-year-old daughter, envisioning some sort of like fairy <laughs> might be more interesting, might help her imagine God <laughs> yeah. better. So, I mean, this was months ago. And now whenever we talk about God as a family, sometimes my daughter refers to God as he, sometimes she. And I, I also have started saying both he and she and they, um, just so we're not kind of reinforcing that divine patriarch image in my house. That's great. Thank you. Well, then I'm curious, what would you say this issue of using feminine pronouns for Allah reveals and the pushback, I guess, what would you say all of that reveals to you right now about broader issues and discussions of gender and Islam in North America and globally? Yeah, so globally, I mean, we've seen kind of extreme manifestations of uh, patriarchy in Muslim countries such as Afghanistan, where the Taliban have taken over again um, in Iran, where there's, you know, the there's modesty enforced by, you know, the modesty police. And, you know, and actually in, in many Muslim majority countries, you have these factions that enforce this, uh, these rigid forms of patriarchy. So, um, and in the West, in America, often, um, you know, in mosques, uh, in, in religious gatherings, they're often segregated. 
often male uh, religious leaders kind of calling the shots. I think we we still have this very clear uh, gender hierarchy in Muslim communities uh, where men come above women. Uh, obviously, this isn't always the case. I'm talking very generally here. Yeah, so I yeah. think when women or when anyone starts referring to Allah as she, it becomes seen as this, oh, no, this feminist movement. This is the Western influence on our religion. Mm. And oh, it's going to destabilize society and really what it's just doing is challenging the status quo and challenging the gender hierarchy that these communities have relied on in order to maintain what they believe is the social order or social balance, which is really just reinforcing these archaic gender roles, which many would say have no root in Islam per se, which is part of the, the culture and the society at the time and have kind of carried through. Well, then speaking of broader issues, I'd like to transition a bit and talk about your book, Modesty, a Fashion Paradox. So could you tell our listeners what is modest fashion and what all does the modest fashion industry include? Yeah. So, I mean, everybody, if you ask any about, if you ask 10 people about modest fashion and what defines modesty, I'm sure you'll get 10 different answers. But um, from a fashion and industry Mm -hmm. perspective, I normally define modest fashion as clothes that cover the shoulders, often up to the wrists, cover the knees, often up to the ankles, high necklines, uh, loose, not form-fitting, not see-through, and often includes a head covering as well. Um, Mm -hmm. What is Mm -hmm. modest fashion? So around 2016, 2017, uh, modest fashion became this buzzword in the industry. Um, We started seeing hijabi models on runways at New York Fashion Week. We started seeing uh, hijabi bloggers on Instagram. Uh, Modest fashion became this huge hashtag. I think there's more than 5 million posts with the modest fashion hashtag on Instagram. Uh, I actually just got a press release earlier this week that said the modest fashion hashtag has surpassed 4 billion views on TikTok. Wow. And that there's been a 43% increase in modest fashion searches on Pinterest over the last six months. So even though this movement kind of started in 2016, 2017, now modest fashion has become this sort of mainstream, not necessarily religious movement, more of a style movement that has influenced high street brands and high fashion houses. So yeah, the industry includes, uh, I would say there are these faith-founded businesses, so like Muslim brands, Orthodox Jewish brands, apostolic Christian brands, a lot of these faith communities have created these, you know, whether it's swimwear or sportswear or evening wear, bridal wear, modest fashion brands. In addition to the faith-based labels, there have been a lot of mainstream brands that have started catering to this demographic of of, uh, religious women, but modest fashion has also started uh, attracting non-religious women as well. It really celebrates this feeling Mm. of comfort and of dressing for yourself, as opposed to for the male gaze, which is what, you know, fashion historically has, I mean, sex sells, that's been the, the kind of the mantra of fashion weeks, uh, especially yes, in Europe, historically. Yes, yes. Historically, there's also been a men designing fashion, like Karl Lagerfeld, Zach Posen, Michael mm-hmm. Kors, the big fashion designers have always been males. And the modest fashion movement is seeing women kind of take back control of the narrative and design clothing for themselves and what they believe women would want to wear. 
That's great. That's very helpful. Thank you. So the um, the revealer back in September 2020, our September 2020 issue of the revealer was a special issue on religion and fashion. And when we were putting it together, and when I was writing the editor's letter. I felt like I had to make the case about why fashion matters when we think about religion. And since this is something you've been thinking about for years, for our last question, I'd really like to ask you, what does thinking about fashion or maybe modest fashion in particular help us to understand about Islam and Muslim women today? So I think it's hard to have this conversation without bringing in like the p- political element. I think in America, especially after 9-11, a lot of women felt like they needed to, wanted to assert their Islamic identity outwardly, while also showing that they're just as um, fashionable, as up-to-date, as stylish, as seamlessly integrated into society as their fellow Americans. I mean, we also saw a big, you would think that there would only be a decrease in women wearing hijabs after, you know, these kind of uh, events take place and as a response to Islamophobia. But actually, a lot of women have started dressing more modestly as a response to, you know, that kind of Islamophobia to really Mm -hmm, assert mm -hmm. that um, their their Muslim identity and their pride in it. So Mm -hmm. I think that number one, there's the political element of, you know, I am Muslim and I can look Muslim and... I can be just as fashionable as any other American and just as successful in society in whatever career uh, I'm in. And then also, I think modest fashion helps uh, helps us see the diversity of Muslim women. Like 10 years ago, the words modest and fashion would never have been used together. And if you thought of Hmm. Muslim fashion, you would have thought, you know, what does the mainstream media feed us narratives of? It was, you know, images of women Mm -hmm. in head to toe black burqas. Um, in in uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan, in Saudi, you know, like these a burqa and a baya and niqab and hijab, those are just the kind of labels used for Muslim fashion. But in America today, in Europe today, all over the world today, you can see Muslim women dressing modestly, covering their skin, but doing so in a really experimental, exciting way, following trends that may not be perceived mm-hmm. as modest trends. You can see some of them wearing crop tops on top of white button-down blouses, you know, wearing a slip Mm. dress over a turtleneck, really um, having fun with fashion. And Mm. uh, it's kind of this no rules movement that, you know, as long as my skin is covered, I can wear whatever I want. I mean, even there's different levels of covering skin. Hijab isn't the only definition of modesty. Some Muslim women are comfortable showing their arms, showing their legs, showing their shoulders, but still kind of embodying modesty uh, in their outfits. So I think overall, this whole modest fashion movement, it aimed to kind of showcase the diversity of Muslim women and the the character that, that we have under our modest clothing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's achieved that, I think. I think these Muslim women really desire to embody their faith in a way that's expressed outwardly, but on their own sartorial terms. And I think in the last half decade or more, I think we've really achieved that on many levels. There's still a lot of work to be done. We still have countries like France where, you know, niqabs and uh, even hijabs are banned on on some women. In Quebec, mm-hmm. Canada, there's still some hijab bans. But I think slowly we're we're gaining momentum in this in this modesty movement. 
That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Hafsa Lodi. You can find her article, The Muslim Women Who Use Feminine Pronouns for Allah, in the Revealer's May 2023 issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of her book, Modesty, A Fashion Paradox, at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the businesses, organizations, and religious groups promoting a spiritual connection between pregnancy and motherhood. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.